0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. When I say that this is going to be a series on World War I, some of you could immediately begin to tune out and go, great, uh, this is the last thing I would ever be interested in. However, one of my secret desires in this is that you would become extremely interested in the movements of history, Uh, because I'm not a fan of war, necessarily. I'm very intrigued in war, about war, because of how it parallels the spiritual life. We are in the midst of battle as believers, and God himself is going to convey that in and through the scriptures, that this is a spiritual war. That we are in and yet our weapons are different but we've been given weapons that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds in other words we need to understand that we have been armed we have an enemy and God intends us to win this battle but he wants to teach us how warfare works and so one of my fascinations with war has to do with that I'm sure there are other elements of it like there's a manhood dimension to war that is very interesting to me and in my initial fascination with World War I, which goes back quite a while, a while, comes to the fact that it's probably the most difficult event, arguably, in history for a man to participate in. There's been a lot of wars that are very difficult, and they're all difficult for men or women to participate in. But this, this precise war is going to create dynamics and situations that we could probably rank in the top one to ten of the most difficult, most trying, most challenging situations that any person could find themselves in. And for whatever reason, I'm interested in that because I want to stick myself into it, into that situation and say, Eric, how are you responding? What are you doing right now? I want to, in a sense, test myself, do a dry run on difficulty so that when I do get to those challenges, I have thought it through. I have oftentimes said, don't wait to make your decision of if Jesus is worth your life to that very moment where someone says, do you want to, you know, deny Christ or die? You don't want to wait till then. You want to evaluate that. Now, you sort of want to do your dry run in your soul. What do you believe? What is your value system? And for whatever reason, World War I does that for me. So I did a series back in 2020. Uh, I started it right before the weirdness uh, hit in March. And so I think it was late February I started that, that series. And then I continued it all the way through that year. It was 93 episodes. And it was profound in how it paralleled with what we were going through in this world. I mean, profound, truly, it was remarkable. And it was, a, it was like sucking on candy for me to go through it. And there were people that never would have dreamt that they could have at all been interested in World War II that found themselves extremely fascinated. Because I'm not going into war and and armaments and people dying. That isn't my focus. It's the movements. It's like how men respond in different situations or women respond in different situations. There's some extraordinary stories. And you can take out and grab these truths and then bring them to our day and age, and they can rivet us. They can transform us. They are very inspiring stories that are in a sense, instructive to our lives as Christians today. And that's, that's profound to me. It's interesting because you'll notice I started with World War II instead of World War I. And I've been wanting to do a series on World War I for a, well, a long time. And yet it's a little harder, if I could say it this way, it's a little harder to do. See, when I say World War II, some of you still may not know what I'm talking about. That could still be a mystery. Uh, but many people know about, like, Adolf Hitler. Okay, that, that's a somewhat, even though you sort of wonder if it should be a household name, it is, right? It is, it is one of those characters that's symbolic, sort of like in the Bible if I say Jezebel. You're like, oh, just symbolic of evil. And so it's an easier thing to tell the story of because you have a very clear evil, and as a result, you have a clear good. And you can sort of play that out in and through a series on World War II. In World War I, just as a starter point, very few people know anything about World War I. Oh, they, they've heard of it. You know, if I said, have you ever heard of World War One?" Yes, I have a hunch you've heard of it. What caused World War I? Oh, some people, you know, there, there's a fraction of people that can name something like a yeah, Franz Ferdinand, you know, the Archduke. And uh, if I said, of where? You'd be like, oh, I don't know, just somewhere over there. Uh, and in other words, it's somewhat of a mystery. But if I, you go any deeper than just Franz Ferdinand getting shot, And, you know, I could even say, who won World War I? And you'd be like, uh, the good guys? (laughs) So in in other words, it's somewhat of a mystery, this entire, if I could call it an epoch, uh, of history, this four-year period of time, which is no small thing in history. It marks a transfer of an old world into a new world. It marks the... Convulsive change of our world where a complete transformation is going to take place worldwide And the world you live in is directly related to those four years That's no small thing and it's so it's interesting to me that very few of us know a thing about it And yet the world we live in was defined by what took place in those four years It's a time of great barbarity in the midst of a very civilized world so it was shocking, sort of like some of the things we've seen of an increase of violence in our world over, remember the year 2020, we had all these riots, and you just sort of felt like, what is going on? That's exactly what it felt like. Just multiply that by about a million. And you have Christian civilizations, I'm going to put quotes around the Christian, Christian countries fighting one another over reasons that are rather piddly, if you want to say it that way. In other words, when you really dig down, it's like, why are we going to war here? And yet, the politics of the situation was ruling instead of clear-minded, uh, we could say, hearty-souled Christianity. In other words, if this is what Christianity is, I wouldn't blame the world for throwing it out. And you know what happened as a result of those four convulsive years known as World War I? Many people lost their faith. You see, this is the beginnings of the world we live in, where it was shaken to the core. It's like it seems like the enemy entered the scene and just sort of was able to pull off whatever he wanted. How does a believer live in the midst of that? That is my question. And that's what leads me to a, to a series on World War I. Because in a sense, we find ourselves in a parallel season where the world is changing dramatically around us, and it's convulsive. And it seems like strong leadership is lacking. Most of these nations, if not all of these nations at this exact time in history did not have strong leaders. Well, that's a perfect storm for you. And that's exactly right. And that's, if you go to Isaiah chapter three, you're going to recognize that's a sign of judgment. A sign of judgment is that manhood is removed from the culture, and you replace it with children and children are now put in charge. What happens? Well, things like World War I. And World War I is, an, is the effects of a self-satiated world. A world that was living in comfort, maybe even beyond what we have known. And they were self-satisfied. They thought highly of themselves. They thought highly of their uh, economic systems. And those had to crash. And so we live in a season not altogether dissimilar. And as a result, I think it's important that we learn these lessons, not so that we can just know history. Knowing history has very little benefit if you're not applying what you know. It's like knowing Scripture. If you don't live it and you just hear it but you don't do it, what's the good of it truly? You know, just to join a Bible quiz team and and be the first one to give the answer to a question and to give it accurately, perfectly uh, you know, stated without any uh, error in it. What's the good if you don't live out that scripture? And the same thing is true with history. My desire isn't necessarily to just teach you World War One. I'm just using World War I as the template, and I think you will find it extremely enjoyable because of that. There is something about learning truth inside of a storyline that is actually rather fun. So, Without further ado, uh, let's begin. Spiritual lessons from World War I. So this is part one. It is called The Sinister Unknown. So in this particular message, I'm going to violate a certain code that I've been using over my past series. And I'm going to skip... Oh, you know, about three years into the story, it's a four-year war, and I'm going to leap forward, and we're going to start right smack in the middle. You know how some novels do that, where they start in this key scene, and you're like, what's going on? And the author doesn't spend a lot of time trying to explain it all. They just sort of give you this moment, and then they go back to the beginning. That's sort of what I'm going to do. Not purposely like I'm trying to tell a novel. But I feel like to sort of enunciate what is going on, you need to recognize that no one expected this. In other words, when this war started, it was full of unknowns to start with, okay? And to call even the beginnings of this the sinister unknown is actually pretty good. You know, if we were to go back to the very beginning of this, you have an unstable Europe. And everyone sort of knows that it's like a ticking time bomb, and it's about to go off. And anything could set it off. And when Gavrilo Princip shoots Archduke Franz Ferdinand, everyone fears I mean, this is just a Serbian guy killing the Austria-Hungarian Archduke. Who cares? Why would that bring Russia into a war? Why would that bring Germany into a war? Why would that bring France into a war? That's a good question. And that's the ticking time bomb that Europe is at this time. And if you lived in that time and you had great wealth, this is like one of the wealthiest times in all of human history is right now these nations are thriving. The economists said there is no way that Europe is going to go to war because they would throw all this down the toilet. Why would you do that? That's a good question. Why do any of us move forward in bad directions in our life? However, if you were to give anyone a guess, most people thought, like the economists like, we will not go to war. People will bluff don't make noise about it, but no one's actually going to destroy this amazing utopian world that we have. And then there were others that said, even if we did go to war, it would be quick because that's what wars are. You know, you study ancient wars and the battles were like one day. In World War I, suddenly these battles will be 300 days. That, that's a whole different type of war. No one understood this. We're going from old war to a new war system, a modern war system in World War I. Well, no one knew that at the time. No one had any idea what was ahead. So when I call it the sinister unknown, that's a pretty good name for it. And right now in our world today... I'm sure you've had those voices whispering to you. Well, whispering, maybe not even the right word. They talk to you on the phone, via email, uh, via conservative news sources, and they're telling you about how you need to be prepared. And, you know, it's going to get bad. You heard these things? Oh, it's, you know, I, it, the, the liberals are doing this, and this is going to mean this for us Christians. It, it's around us all the time. How does a Christian respond to this? Do we just fall for it and, you know, crumple up into the fetal position on the floor and go, stuck our thumb and go, oh Lord, get me out of here. When the world is falling to pieces, when it is losing its head, we do not. We do not fall to pieces. We do not lose our head. We are believers. We have something the world doesn't have. We have rock beneath our feet when winds and rains beat against us. And as a result, it is imperative as we go through this to recognize even if there is a sinister unknown up ahead, even if things are difficult just around the bend, we do not fear them. And when we meet them, we greet them with a smile. For we are built upon rock. Or I should say, we should be built upon rock. So this is a a term that has been used in war for many uh, centuries, and it's called the fog of war. Now, the fog of war is still a term you could use because no matter what, you, when, whenever you're in a battle or in a war, it dizzies your senses. You know, if you had artillery shells going off around you and shrapnel flying around, if you were ducking down in a, in a trench and you know machine gun fire is going over your head and you really have to go to the bathroom bad, okay, uh, you can follow that that's not a very easy situation for any human to be in. And it creates a psychological dizziness. But nowadays we can actually communicate. You know we have our walkie-talkie communications. We have all sorts of communications now, you know digital communications, we have satellite surveillance, you know, we have all sorts of things that they did not have back in the early 20th century. So, you know, 1914 is when World War I is going to start. And so technology was very limited at the time. What that war is going to do is it's going to spike a technological revolution because that's what war does. War demands invention. You have to solve the problem like barbed wire. Uh, Barbed wire. So all of you, I want you to figure out how to get through barbed wire quick. And all these geniuses are sitting around going, barbed wire, that should be easy. So they try and attack it with bombs and the bombs don't blow it up. Shrapnel doesn't blow it up. So, what in the world do you do? You know what the invention of the tank was for? To mow down barbed wire. Isn't that incredible? In World War I. And so that's how it started. And then they began to realize hey, this is a pretty cool invention. We could do also, we can transport the troops in it too. We can get in there and they can't harm us. There's, there's all sorts of things that came out. But the inventions that come out of World War I are astounding. It's a technological revolution. But at that time, just imagine what, how disorienting and destabilizing it would be to be given a mission. So you're leading a troop of men and you're told, you know, here's, here's your job. You see it on a map and you go here and you defend this territory. You, you know, set up your offensive operations and your artillery fire this direction. And then fog sets in and you hear some explosions over here, some explosions over here. And you are dizzy. You have no idea. Are your Flanks open to the enemy. Are you are you vulnerable? There's no communication the same way they have now, and so as a result, it's historically known as the fog of war, where you lose your sense of place. You're in the midst of bomb blasts and everything. Which way's north? Which way's uh, west, south, and east? And you lose your sense of place. Now, the reason I bring up the concept of the fog of war is because this isn't just in physical warfare, this is something you will know in spiritual warfare. And some of you, even as I describe it, when you apply it to your soul, it's a familiar feeling. You've had that before, where in one moment you see clearly, you know exactly what God has asked you to do, and then something dizzies you. And it doesn't oftentimes need to be much. It could be an you know, overdrawn bank account, and suddenly you're just like falling to pieces. It could be a harsh word from someone in your life. You're a sturdy soldier. What happened to you? Because now suddenly you're dizzied in the battle and the enemy is going to leverage that against you. And so as a result, just to understand how the enemy works, he works in and through confusion and he desires to destabilize you and distract you from your commission. So here's a definition uh, of the fog of war. Uncertainty amidst the battle, soul dizziness, battlefield disorientation, mental blur, Where am I? Where are my allies? Where is my enemy? Who is stronger in this battle? What are my odds of actually winning this thing? When you start to question that. You could have far superior numbers. There are all sorts of illustrations in history where the far superior power actually is dizzied and loses their orientation and fears a much smaller power. Gideon is a great illustration of that. In other words, Gideon did not have the the numbers in power against the Midianites but the enemy was disoriented in the fog of war They began killing each other i mean talk about idiots right and yet this is something that happens in the midst of battle i'm going to give it another name and we're going to call it the sinister unknown see how i wove my title into that so we're going to skip forward uh, in this remember the 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 war is going to start in 1914, and I'm going to go back to the beginning, we'll start from, from that, but I sort of want to put us right in the middle of the dizziness, right in the middle of the fog of war. So if we start in 1917, I'm going to say that both sides, you have what used to be called the Triple Entente, is going to then be called the Allies, and in World War II, they're also going to be called the Allies. Typically, we, of course, especially if you're from North America, are going to call them the good guys, okay? That's a tendency. and. Those can be debatable points, you know, if you could say, well, you know, they really weren't that bad. Uh, but as the way I'm going to present this, even though it can get me in trouble, is I have a tendency to take the British side in what I do, and that's mainly because I usually am studying Winston Churchill's memoirs, and I did that again for World War I. So I have a tendency to be British biased. I don't know why that is, because I'm American, right? But again, my middle name is Winston, and so that has a tendency to sway me, maybe. But so I, I look at things from the Allied side. Germany, at the end of the war, is going to be the guilty party for starting this. That's the way it's going to come down in history. And of course, many of us associate the Germans with Hitler, and so they're just bad, right? So it's, they're not as evil in World War I as they are in World War II, and that's part of the trickiness of teaching World War I. And there's a lot, it's a, it's a Christian nation, Germany is. I'm German, by the way. And so as a result, it's, it's not like I'm trying to pin Germany as evil or Germans as evil. It's just that they were the aggressors in this story. And so you have this other side, which is called the Central Powers, which since most of us have never heard of Austria, Hungary, it was like this massive uh, country in Europe at the time. And then you had Germany, massive country, and then you had Italy. And so it's the very center of uh, Europe was basically this one, they they were all in unity together. And then you have big Russia, uh, and then you have uh, these other forces that were allied together too. And so you just sort of see the uh, tinderbox ready to explode. They've been duking it out for two and a half, three years now. And no one would have ever dreamt that in 1917, we still are at war. In fact, we're not just at war, but there's no foreseeable end to this. And this is like tens of millions of men dying. I mean, just in a day, you could lose 75,000 men dead. Not just casualties, dead. Casualties means unable to fight anymore. Dead is dead. And that is so many that the, it was so staggering to the world. They had no ability to compute this modern war. They'd, they'd never seen anything like it. So Kaiser Wilhelm II, who's the German emperor, and Kaiser means Caesar. Isn't that interesting? So at the, start of 19, at the start of this war, we have a czar in Russia, and czar comes from the same word Caesar, and Kaiser in Germany, they basically are kings or Caesars, and this is in the age of kings, and kings still ruled in 1914, if you could imagine. This is the old world coming into a new world, and... Kaiser Wilhelm, who's the German emperor in August of 1914, he says to his men, you'll be home before the leaves fall from the trees. So this is his entire mentality of how long this battle is going to be, right? This war is just going to be over. And this is starting in the early fall or even late summer. And and we'll be home in just a few months is the concept. So now let's go to the other side. And we have a very unique character, Joseph Joffre the French commander-in-chief, and this is in the same month, August 1914. In, no, no soldier went to battle in 1914 with a metal helmet. They all went with cloth hats or caps. Cloth. Cloth doesn't do a very good job against shrapnel. Doesn't do a good job against uh, machine gun fire. I mean, this is extraordinary, but this is the old world coming into a new world. And... So Joseph Jaffer, when, when his, uh, his military men are saying, we need helmets, these guys are dying unnecessary deaths, we just need helmets for these guys, and we would spare countless lives. And this is his response. Don't bother to, to send the metal helmets. They'll never reach the troops before the war is over. I mean, uh, that's just a few months to get the metal helmets out there, right? But they all expected this to be over quickly. There's something in our spiritual lives known as suffering, and there's something else known as long-suffering. And sometimes we flail in our spiritual lives because we expect things that are difficult when we pray to end quickly. And we do not have a grid in our lives for something known as long-suffering. And some of you are like, I would prefer not to need to have that grid, Eric, And I understand that. I really do. On the human side, I do not prefer suffering, let alone long-suffering. However, as a believer, you need to recognize that you are built for this. And great fruit is born in and through suffering. And even greater fruit is born in and through the exercise of long-suffering. In this situation, these nations knew that there was going to be suffering. But what they were not prepared for was long-suffering. And when it began to go long, they began to fall to pieces. So two and a half years later, we're going to have a scene. If you guys have ever heard of Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton is going to be in the Antarctic. And he is going to... Uh, he knew when he left, the war was just like beginning. And he like escaped. Smart guy, right? And, but everyone expected, including him, that this would be over and done with quickly. So he's, you know, he had his ship crash and leak and they have to go on this grand adventure. It's a great book called Endurance. However, it's been two and a half years and he finally finds a whaling station. And this is the conversation that's gone down in history. Shackleton says, tell me, when was the war over? And the guy, I'm calling him Shackleton's benefactor, I don't know the guy's name, just the guy that was at the whaling station, the one that was helping him, says, the war isn't over. Millions are dead. Europe is mad. The world is mad. I just gave a direct quote of some of you during 2020. In other words, that's the way it felt, didn't it? It's like, uh, so when were, could you imagine you went into some like uh, lockdown, you know, we went into space maybe, and then you came back and said, when, when were the lockdowns over? You know, wasn't it just sort of like uh, something to stop the curve? Remember that? It's like, uh, I don't remember what, squashed the curve. I don't remember what that was called. And what was it going to be like a week or two, two weeks so when, did, when were the lockdowns over? Two weeks? The world is mad. <laughs> That's exactly how we felt. So the world in 1917 going into 1918, this is a key year in, in history. Because the world you live in is basically not just defined by the, the time up to this point, which it is, but something is going to begin to happen. You're seeing a convulsion. Of the world. They can't handle this. They've lost millions of fighting men. An entire generation is going to be wiped out of men. Entire generation. I mean, it is remarkable what these nations are going to go through to continue this war. And the world is beginning to crack under the pressure. So I'll give the first momentous uh, event. Uh, and I have the date as January 31st, 1917. Technically, it was February 1st when the U- U-boats were released. But Germany, I'm gonna say Germany cracks. And the reason I'm gonna say it that way is because Germany was restraining themselves. They have these things called U-boats, which we know as submarines. And they were shooting vessels because they're trying to hinder the, the ships coming in to British uh, ports. And they want to try and uh, shut down what the British are getting as far as materials. And so when they were doing that, they would hit ships, but sometimes those ships had Americans on it. And you don't wanna get the Americans into the war. The Americans up until this point are not in the war. And the Germans do not want the Americans to side with the Allies. That's just not a wise idea. And so they've been restraining themselves from using their U-boats lest they accidentally kill another American, which they did back in 1915. There was a boat called the Lusitania that went down and had 128 Americans on it. Whoo! that riled up the American people because up to that point, the Americans were not anti-German, they weren't pro-Allies, they were just like, hey, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And then they sunk 128 Americans, whoa, big mistake. And then Woodrow Wilson said, you guys cannot shoot another uh, ship that's just carrying passengers. And the Germans, reticently hold back and it's been a couple years that they haven't been doing you know all that and then they realize they cannot win this war unless they unleash their u-boats but if they unleash their u-boats what could happen it could antagonize the americans that would be bad news germany can't handle it anymore they have to win this war they have no choice they're going to crack and that's what i'm saying they're going to unleash their u-boats Mo- Momentous number two, this is March, okay? That was February 1st, this is March. Russia, and I know I'm giving away huge spoilers in World War I here, but I just wanna just sort of put you into the scene. Russia is in convulsions right now. They're going through a revolution. The people do not want this war. The Russians lost more people than anyone in the entire war. And they do not want this war. They're starving, they have people. I mean, they, it's a farm-based uh, system And all their men that farm are off at the war. There's starvation going on. This is terrible. And then you have this movement. It's called the Bolshevik Revolution. You have this thing. We know it as communism that is beginning to voice itself. And it wants this war over. And so you're going to see the fall of the Russian Empire. March of 2000, of of 1917. And it is a momentous occasion. The Russian Empire is the biggest empire in the world. The Tsar is likely the most powerful man in the world going into World War I. And he is going to topple. This is a massive thing. That that empire has been ruled by the Romanov family for 300 years. And this is going to happen in March of this year. And momentous event number three. And I'm going to say America cracks. These are nations cracking. You could say, what do you mean cracked? America cracked? The United States declares war on Germany? I'm saying that because in a different sort of way of cracking. You know, the Americans have had a uh, foreign policy since the very beginning. George Washington established it. We do not engage in foreign issues. We do not fight battles over yonder across the ocean. Let them deal with their battles. We'll deal with our home battles. That was Americans' foreign policy up until this moment. And there were certain things, which we'll go into, that are going to antagonize America, one being the U-boats. Okay? When, when Germany did that, then the American people just had had enough. But there was something else, and I'll go into it. The Zimmerman telegram. It was a fascinating thing to study. But that's going to get the Americans so mad that they're ready to fight the Germans. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So this is like convulsive things happening on the world stage. That's April 6th of that same year. So back and forth, back and forth. If I were to just stop the film, like say you're watching this adventure movie and you, you stop and you go, who do you think's gonna win? There are times where I bet we'd, we'd have like 80% of you going the Germans are easily gonna win this thing. And you would be right, it is so obvious the Germans are gonna win it. And then we, you know, we go forward another couple minutes in the movie, stop, who do you think's gonna win now? Oh, the allies have them, totally backed into a corner. All right, let's watch a few more minutes. Who's gonna win now? German, Germany has them, I mean 100% of you would raise your hand, yeah, Germany won. I mean, that's how weird this battle is and that's how weird our spiritual lives can feel if we follow events as opposed to stay true to God is see, is God gonna lose this thing no but what if it seems like he's losing you know that that's what it looks like in the world today doesn't it sort of look like God's losing Yeah, God must not have a lot of power because the enemy seems to be bullying him around the church seems to be shoved into the corner who's gonna win this thing you need to know that in World War One it's so unstable that no one knows. You have no ability to plan for the future in, in, in the midst of this time. No idea what's going to happen. Who's going to be ruling your nation? You don't know. So, momentous event number four, the breakthrough at Caporetto. It's, uh, they had had 12 battles in this same spot in Italy. And suddenly, the Germans are going to throw in extra forces with the Austro-Hungarians, and they're going to break through. Major loss to the Allies. And if you're on the Allied side, which I feel like I am as I'm reading through the story, right? And I'm like, oh, no, we just lost to Caporetto. And you, you feel it. You feel the morale of the overall army begin to sink. And then momentous event number five, the capture of Jerusalem. And then the British actually captured Jerusalem in the Middle East. Huge event in history. I mean, it, this happened in the midst of all this. It's like, whoa. And now the Allies are like, yeah. And so now the momentum switches. This is like a month later. And you have swells back and forth of major uh, historic events. And then, because of the fall of the Russian Empire, you know what that means? Russia is going to pull out of the war. You know what that means for the Allies? They just lost the most powerful military in the world supporting this cause against Germany. Oh, uh, gulp! And you know that Germany had what, three million, no, a million troops and 3,000 guns that they're going to move to the West now, to what's called the Western Front. Okay, this doesn't look good for the Allies at this exact moment, okay? March of 1918, we have issues. If you're the Allies, if you're what we're gonna call the good guys in this, uh uh-oh, it's gulp time. So welcome to 1918. We're gonna call it the year of desperation. So this war is actually going to end in 1918, I know, spoiler alert. However, it's not going to go down the way anyone's expecting. There are so many moments in this. I mean, right in the very beginning of the war, most of you would be totally confident that France was going to be crushed within the first month. And this war would have been over. I understand why they thought it was gonna be quick. And yet, I mean, they call it the miracle on the Marne. And you just stare at it and go, how did that happen? And the war continues. And France regains its position and Germany starts backing off. It's like, whoa, how did that happen? So this is a guy we'll get to know throughout this series. And I have a certain love-hate relationship with this guy because I feel like he stole my name. Uh, Look at it. It's Eric Ludendorff. (laughs) Okay, now this guy is not a good guy. Okay, in my mind, he's he's very anti everything I stand for. Like he's he's anti Jesus, even in his platform. Okay, he is a he's a mean character. Now he is noble and he's brave. Brave is all get out. One of the bravest guys in all of World War One. He he truly is. But he is going to move up the ranks in the German military, and he's ultimately going to be like commander in chief of the armed forces at this time in the war. And my just to give you and I'll I'll go through this when I I have a future message just on him but uh, my mom's maiden name is Obendorf, and my dad's name is Ludi. So if we were to blend those two names together, we'd have Ludendorff, okay? That is really weird, especially since he's not a good guy. Okay, I've joked uh, about how would you feel if you know, your name was Adolf Hit, you know, and there's this guy named Adolf Hitler out there. It's like, it doesn't make you feel very good, right? And I'm just glad this guy isn't very well known, because uh, most people aren't like, are you like related to Eric Ludendorf? No, no, never heard of them. The cock crows in the distance. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> so this is this is a quote from Eric Ludendorff at this crucial moment in history, March of 1918. We must strike at the earliest moment before the American can, Americans can throw strong forces into the scale. We must beat the British. So the Americans are mounting their resistance. They're try, starting to send men over from North America over to fight. We have to move now, is what Ludendorff says. Now I have an imaginary quote uh, from Ludendorff, but this is called in history, it's called Ludendorff's final card. Operation Michael, March 21st, 1918, he's gonna throw everything in. Desperation is a great description of it. And uh, so this is my imaginary quote. You see it at the very bottom, this is imaginary quote. Now this is what he did, so it's not like he didn't say this, it's just not a direct quote, okay? I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth. Pull the very best from the army. Bring me the strongest. I'm putting them at the front. We are building a f- fist made up of Germany's stoutest. So he's going to hit France and Britain with everything he has. He's going to take the best out of his entire army. And he's going to stick them all into a fist, and he's going to hit in Operation Michael. He's, basically, he's spending everything. Because what if he loses this? He's already taken his best out of his army. That's a big deal. But that's how desperate things have gotten So March 23, 1918, now that was March 21 is when Operation Michael starts. March 23, 1918 is declared a national holiday in Germany by the Kaiser. So how well do you think that final card, that final push was working? It worked extremely well to the point that the Kaiser is calling a national holiday. It's basically everyone in Germany knows this war has been won. It worked, Ludendorff pulled it off, his final card worked. And so here's the Kaiser, it's all but over, we won. Okay, that's March 23rd, 1918. Again, if I said, so who's gonna win this war? You'd all vote, yeah, Germany's gonna win it. And so I have a British flag up there, and this is just a made-up quote for Great Britain. I'm sure they didn't say it this way. Uh, it's all but over, we lost. That's how dark of a day this is. Now, if you know the end of World War One. You know that there's still more to happen. I don't want to give anything away, right? But that's that's one of the things I love about World War One is if you listen to it in its flows, it's like this grand action adventure where one guy's gonna win. No, no, another guy's gonna win. It's back and forth. It constantly is like keeping you on the edge of your seat because all of history is hanging in the balance and no one knows how it's going to play out. Facing the sinister unknown. You know, when the Kaiser is calling for, uh, you know, a national holiday, how does that make you feel? You know, when you feel like the devil is calling for a national holiday, sorry to liken the Kaiser to the devil uh, there, it wasn't a purposeful thing, but when the enemy, when you feel like they're going on their celebration rounds and they're, you know, running the track one time, you know, waving their flag, it's hard. It's hard to watch, you know, as a believer going, what has happened to the world here we are, we're trying to bring Jesus to the world, to see it changed for Jesus Christ, and it seems to go going in the opposite direction. How do you face such a situation? And this is what I want to bring to the surface, and I want to actually work through in our lives. God wants you to be stout and solid in the midst of a melting world. Isn't that an amazing thought? Imagine if it was just possible that you could be stable and strong with a smile on your face no matter what happens in this world. If I said that that was something you could have, how interested would you be in getting it? Isn't that interesting? If, if that was a real thing, like say, say it was something you could sell at the market, like uh, imperturbability, immovability, and it was something that cost you $7 million. But hey, if you have $7 million, you could buy it. Some of you would begin saving up right now because just to have that soul stability where you are not moved by anything and you can be cheerful in any circumstance, that is something very precious. And yet it doesn't cost you a thing other than it demands faith. You have to reach out and grab it by faith. But you have to know it's there to reach out and grab it. So there's normal human response, which we will call fear, dread, fret, and panic. That's normal. So if that's the way you're responding right now to life circumstances and the situations around you, just know you fall into a good club known as normal humanity. However, normal humanity is not really where you want to end up because normal humanity is under the threat of judgment, just condemnation. In other words, that's normal humanity. That's normal humanity's response and that's normal humanity's destination. We don't want to be normal humanity. We want to transfer from being normal humanity to being super normal humanity. We want to be transformed by the shed blood of Jesus, by the grace of God. And when we turn to Jesus and we believe in Christ, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness, or I could say from normal humanity, into a different category, a different way of living, a different way of thinking. The Christian response in the midst of a sinister unknown, Faith, rest, confidence, peace. Wow. You interested? You interested in having a little of that in your life in the midst of your trials? What's funny is your trials probably are not as big as World War I. And yet, they've still shaken you to the core. What if God were to bring that clear assurance to your soul that he wants to build you for even the worst of circumstances. Even a trench on the Western Front in World War I, which has to rank as one of the worst places on earth in all of history to be. And what if you knew that God said, even if it's the worst, I'll be with you. I will give you precisely what you need. You need not fear. When God is with you, it's a good thing. So the triumphant perspective when the bombs fall, so we're gonna go to World War II. Since I'm in World War mode, I figure I can draw from an illustration of World War II. One of my favorite illustrations out of my entire World War II series is what we could call a Pearl Harbor or December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. Okay, if you're American, you have to know what that is, right? That's a key event in history. The Americans had no interest in being in World War II any more than they had in World War I, and one event is going to change everything. When the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, it is going to awaken the sleeping giant known as America. Now, if you're Winston Churchill, I'm gonna give you a quote from Winston Churchill here. I love Winston Churchill quotes. And Winston Churchill, when he hears that America was bombed, he gets rather excited. <laughs> he sleeps like a baby that night. Why? Because he is now convinced that the Allies will win the war. Japan just made the biggest mistake. They just awakened America. Now, to America, it's a disaster, right? But to Winston Churchill, he's going to say, yes, look what is going to happen now. And this is precisely your perspective. This is why I call it the triumphant perspective. What could be deemed from one lens of your life a negative or a disaster a tragedy if you look at it through God's perspective you recognize God's gonna win and as a result you can have a triumphant perspective knowing that what even the enemy means for evil gets turned to good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And this is why we can have triumph in every situation. We know that everything turns into a strength for us as believers, everything. There isn't any exception to that. So I have a good picture of Winston Churchill with his cigar there. Uh, So this is what he says. No American will think it wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. I could not foretell the course of events. I do not pretend to have measured accurately the martial might of Japan. But now, at this very moment, I knew the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So we had won after all. That's actually his thought. We had won. I mean, there's a lot more war left to fight. But we had won after all. Yes, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after the horrible episode of Iran... After the threat of invasion, when apart from the air and the Navy, we were an almost unarmed people. After the deadly struggle of the U-boat war, the first battle of the Atlantic gained by a hand's breadth, After 17 months of lonely fighting and 19 months of my responsibility and dire stress, we had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell. Nor did I at this moment care. Once again, in our Long Island history, we should emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. And as for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. The British Empire, the Soviet Union, and now the United States bound together with every scrap of their life and strength were according to my lights twice or even thrice the force of their antagonists. No doubt it would take a long time. I expected terrible forfeits in the East, but all this would be merely a passing phase. United we, w- we could subdue everybody else in the war in the world. That is a unique perspective to have. There's a lot of World War II left. And Winston Churchill's gonna say, we won. It's like, uh, we're still in the midst of fighting. What do you mean we won? The United States is in. We won. You see, you can have this perspective. You can sleep really well tonight because there's something you can know right now that promises you victory, that promises you that every single situation in your life, even if it's difficult to walk through it, is going to be turned into triumph, every single bit of it. Many disasters, immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead but there was no more doubt about the end. Isn't that a great summation of the Christian life right there? Many disasters of measurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. The reasoning of a Christian. So this comes from a Bill Gaither uh, song called Because He Lives, and it says it really well, guys. Listen to this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. As believers, you know what we can say? He lives. But what about this terrible circumstance going on? What about the conspiracies against Christianity? Well, he lives. You see, we we already know the end. We know that there is no conspiracy that's actually going to quash Christianity. It's going to win. We know that God wins. Or do we? Do you guys know that? I know that. But do you know that? Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. So when every other knee is bowing, our Redeemer who lives will be standing. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, says Jesus, for the hour is coming in which all who are in graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You know that evil will be judged? You know that good will be rewarded? Do You know that there is a resurrection? Do you know that? Do you know how the end turns out? So skipping to the end of the book, I know, spoiler alert jesus wins now i know we've said this many times in christianity but this is actually a secret to us is to remember this and to remember this and to remember this and to rehearse this and to rehearse this and to rehearse this this to your soul don't buy the enemy's guff don't buy the enemy's dismal outlook on your life he's feeding you a whole bunch of garbage about your future He's trying to discourage and bring you to despair. However, God wants to strengthen you with his word, his promises. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will win. And you will share in that victory. Sleeping like a baby amidst the bomb blasts. Wouldn't that be nice right now? Some of you have had struggles. You lay in bed at night and you sort of have those... uh, those Miseries, those anxiety attacks where you need the plastic—or not the plastic—the paper bag to breathe into—and uh, because of the tensions of life and the world around you, not knowing your future, and it's a very real thing for the younger generation. Because you know, when you're when you're my age, which is fifty-one, uh, you can you sort of have been around the block to recognize that you can go through difficulties, but there's still another day ahead. There's still another week ahead. There's still another month ahead. There's still another year ahead. But when you're young and you don't know that, the enemy tries to blind you and say, there's no future for you. You're a God. This world has fallen to pieces. You don't have a future and a hope. The exact opposite is true. God is your future and your hope. You have something. Get excited about it. In in Proverbs 31, it talks about the woman of virtue. And it says that she smiles at the days to come. That's a symbolic, we're the bride of Christ in a sense, in the Proverbs 31 global fashion. We are the bride of Christ, and what do we do? We smile at the days to come. Sleeping like a baby amidst the bomb blasts without a care in this world. So this is Winston Churchill. On the night of December 7th, being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed on the night of December 7th, 1941, and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Isn't that the way you should sleep when bomb blasts are falling on Pearl Harbor? I mean, the world is, you know, being rocked and it's unstable. And what do you sleep like? Oh, like a baby. How could you sleep like a baby? Because I know we're gonna win this thing. He lives. Great quote to be finishing this with. Corey Tenboom says, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So yes, there's a sinister unknown out in front of us all, and it's barking at us, it's growling at us, it's snarling at us, saying, yeah, in your future, it's going to be hard. In our future, there's going to be Jesus. That's our meditation. What's up ahead? Jesus. What's around the bend? More Jesus. What about those lions up ahead? Jesus is going to walk me through them, because he's with me always, always. It does not matter the trial, the tribulation, the challenge that is up ahead. You have the remedy. You have the grace. You have the power to walk through it with triumph. You need to know that. So what should you expect in this series on spiritual lessons from World War I? Well, there's going to be some terrible mispronunciations of names. Names. I have uh, some French and German names, especially. I don't even know that I'll get the British ones right, right? Winston Churchill. It's probably like Winston Churchill, you know, and I've been saying it wrong this whole time, right? However, wow, okay, I'm just gonna prep you with that up ahead of time. Powerful spiritual truths. You see, the reason I'm saying it that way is if you were expecting just a layout of all World War I, I'm gonna skip over so much in World War I. It's possibly the most complex thing that's ever happened on earth is World War I. And that's why a lot of people just go brain dead on and go, okay, I don't have a clue about that. It's a difficult thing to understand. I'm not going to try and teach it all, but I'm going to, in a sense, skip along the top of it. And you'll actually feel like you know a lot about World War I when it's done. You'll probably know more than 99.99% of the world because they don't know that much anyways about it. However, I mean, there's a lot of homeschool families that will use, they, they use spiritual lessons from World War II As curriculum if you could believe it I don't know if that's wise or not right (laughs) but it really is powerful to actually go through this and learn the history because you will learn it but that's not my focus is just to teach you World War One it's like uh, you go home it's like what did you learn at Eller's I learned about World War One it's like that's not really the goal right it's to learn Jesus and then great intrigue that's that's one thing I guarantee you it's it's there I mean I this is such an amazing story And it impacts us so deeply. You're going to see a little like puzzle pieces come into the world you know. It's like, whoa. So that's the reason that that works that way in our world. Yeah, it all comes down to these four years. It's amazing. What should you expect to glean from this series? Well, here's a short list. How to navigate a season of convulsive change. When things are changing around you, how do we walk through that as believers? How to respond to growing barbarism. When there's an increase of violence around us, how do we respond To this. What is the Christian response to a world that is destabilized and uh, flesh is beginning to take over? How to show triumphant faith amidst seeming defeat. When the world is saying, you're done for, give up, how do we have that triumphant faith and sleep like Winston Churchill did on December 7th, 1941? How to shine Jesus in the darkest moments. Because that's what we want. We don't want to say, well, yeah, our season of evangelism has been, you know, is stopped. Why? Well, because the world doesn't want to hear us anymore. The world has never wanted to hear about Jesus. Okay? Go all the way back to the beginning. The disciples were all martyred. Even John was, you know, who you could say, well, he lived. I mean, he died of old age. Yeah, he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. And then they pulled him out and he was unscathed. They didn't know what to do with this guy. So they exiled into Patmos. Every single one of them faced great difficulty because they stood for Jesus in a hostile age. Let us learn the lessons of those that have gone before us that it does not matter how dangerous, how dark, how difficult the age and generation we have been assigned. We have a job to do. And it's God who is going to arm us and strengthen us to enter into this battle and win it. Father, I pray that you would take not just this series, but even just this truth today, and you would apply it deep into our lives. And Lord, I ask that you'd prepare us to live an elevated life, that we would not model the culture around us, but that we would seek your word, to know your word, to know your behavior, and to understand how the Holy Spirit wants to work in us to shine the life, the light of Jesus in a darkened world. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ Go to Ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.